Welcome to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We are an evangelical free church seeking to honor God by making disciples that learn about, love like, and live like Jesus. Amen. Well, good morning. Thank you for joining us this morning. And happy Mother's Day to the moms in the audience. Uh, I feel somewhat obligated to start by pointing out, if you have not been with us, we are preaching through the book of Esther. We're doing it a little bit differently. One of the reasons why it's important to point this out is because if you haven't been here and you came to church because you're here with your mom, I don't know if that's something that still happens, but you came to church with your mom and you thought, oh, they're preaching on one of the books named after a woman. That's... There is no connection between these things, and I say that because if you were to read the book of Esther and understand what's going on, you would think there's something psychologically wrong with me, and I just want to make sure we're all on the same page. It just happened, it just so happened that we are in the book of Esther on Mother's Day. It's actually a little bit better than I had a buddy in, in seminary. Uh, he had to teach on a passage in the Gospel of Mark around chapter 3 on Mother's Day where Jesus actually sends his mom away and dismisses her and says, who are my mothers and brothers but those who do the will of God? And I thought, you know, I'm not the kind of guy who kind of jettisons different things in the preaching schedule for Hallmark card holidays, but I I probably would have caved on that one. I probably would have, you know what, let's just skip right on over and we'll come back next week. But no, he trooped on through to much angry glares, as I recall from his story. But we, we are not in that passage, thankfully enough. We are in the book of Esther. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, open them up to the book of Esther. If you are new to the Bible, or you're just like me and regularly forget where books are in the Bible, don't worry, there's a table of contents in the front of every single Bible I have ever opened. So if you flip over there, it'll show you the exact page number you can find. As well, I should say, um, if you don't have a copy of the Bible which you find readable, maybe because of language, or maybe you just find the content a little bit difficult to grapple with, would you come and see me after the service? Because I would love to put in your hand either a Bible that's more readable for you or one with some study notes that'll help unpack some of the things taking place there. The reason why we do that is because we believe here at Journey Church that the Bible is not just a good book, but it is fundamental for you knowing God and for you growing spiritually. So I would love to put a Bible in your hand that you would open up and be able to read, whether it's because of the language which you're struggling with or the content which might be difficult to decipher at times. And while you're turning to the book of Esther, it might be helpful to know before I get into the sermon that we are not preaching through the book of Esther in the normal way in which we go about things. You see, normally at Journey Church, when we preach through a book of the Bible, we do so pretty linearly. You start in verse 1, chapter 1, and you work forward at a reasonable rate, covering reasonable chunks of the text until you have reasonably covered as much of the text as you can in a reasonable period of time. So we do it all very reasonably. Uh, However, if you've been with us for the last two weeks, you would have noticed that Pastor Jim has covered the entirety of the book of Esther in two weeks, and we've got four left. So, the rest of these sermons take a more topical approach to the book of Esther. We are looking at the book of Esther, and we are seeing in Esther what it has to say, not just in terms of its content in Scripture, but what it has to say to our culture and our community. And within the book of Esther, I think that there's a few smatterings of themes that they pop up on on occasions, and then they go subterranean only to appear later in the text, or sometimes not in the book of Esther at all, but pop up in a completely different book of the Bible later. So we're going to be looking at one of those themes today, and that theme is the theme of the kingdom of man. So let me pray as we get into the text this morning. Father in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done. Your name is holy and your power is sovereign. One theologian has said that there is not a single square inch of this world over which you do not cry out, it is mine. And as such, Father, we do not give this morning to you, but we recognize that it is already yours. We ask you to speak to us this morning, to convict us of where we fall short of living in your kingdom, but to encourage us as well with the glory, the wisdom, 
and the surety and security of your kingdom. Speak through me this morning, Lord, as I minister your word to your people. Amen. As the book of Esther opens, it does so with the words, Now in the day of Ashuerus, the Ashuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. Now there's several things taking place in these opening words. One of them is that the author of Esther is trying to clarify for us who he is talking about. When you read something in the, in the ancient languages or in the, the way they would have described things in the past, they would say, in the days of, and then if there's more than one character, they're going to try and identify that character by some way we should know him. So in a sense, you read the phrase, in the days of Ashuerus, and the follow-up question should be, which Ashuerus? Hence why the author then says, the one whose reign elapsed this amount of time and covered this much region." The reason for that is there was more than one Ahasuerus. There was more than one person who went by this because, as Jim said a few weeks ago, Ahasuerus is not the name of prominence given to him in the historical record. Rather, it is a title of sorts. And so there were many people probably known by the name Ahasuerus, and the author has to clarify that for us. Interestingly enough, Ahasuerus is a, uh, is a phrase that the Jews developed via the way they come up with slang. Which, by the way, for any of you familiar with old British gangster movies, it's very similar. You see, in England, the, all the slang has to do not with the meaning of words, that's generally what we do here in, in America, but rather it has to do with how the word strikes your ear. So it's not uncommon for you to read the Bible, see a name, see a footnote next to that name, go down to the bottom of the page, and it'll say, sounds like, and then in parentheses it has a phrase. So sounds like star, sounds like father, sounds like nations. Well, if there was a footnote in your Bible next to a Ahasuerus, it would say, sounds like, and then next to that footnote, it would say, King Headache. Because that is who this king is. Is as they referred to a Ahasuerus, it had a meaning in Persian, but it also had a meaning to the Jews. And that, that meaning was that this king was a headache. Now, that could be, as you would, if you read the text, you would encounter... Uh, it could be because he drinks copious amounts of alcohol throughout the course of the text, and he himself struggles with many headaches. More likely, however, it is because this king was a headache to the Jewish people. And so I thought, as I read through and meditated on and poured over the book of Esther, thinking in terms of how the kingdom of man can be such a headache often to those of us who believe and seek to follow God, seek to live in the way of Jesus Christ, seek to live as citizens of the kingdom of God. What is it that God would have to say to us experiencing the many headaches of living in the kingdom of man? And I came up with three points that I see all in the book of Esther. They go as follows. The kingdom of man is decadent. The kingdom of man is foolish. And the kingdom of man is insecure. Now, it might be helpful to start by explaining what I mean by the kingdom of man. It's a term I take from one of the greatest texts in all of theological history. It is titled, De Civite Di Contra Pagnos, or the city of God against the pagans. This book was written by a theologian named Augustine, and in it he tries to clarify that every person in the world lives in one of two kingdoms, and there is no dual citizenship. You only get one option, you don't get to pick both. And those two kingdoms are the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man, or in his text, the city of God and the city of man. Now, living in one of these two kingdoms was about your allegiance, and he advocated at the fall of the Roman Empire, that the city of Rome, which had been Christianized at the time, was not, in fact, in the kingdom of God. That the fall of Rome did not represent the kingdom of man's triumph over the kingdom of God, but rather represented a city struggling to live after Christ, but ruled fundamentally by sinful people. And in a realm where sin is still existent, you will always have the tension of how one kingdom in our world, in our temporal time, in this era, can function properly under God's reign. And so he was rather controversial, but he said that those who live in the kingdom of man 
they can be no help to those in the kingdom of God. But those who live in the kingdom of God will find, because of the commandment to love your neighbor, that we can enable the kingdom of man to actually flourish while we live subsequent of God's rule. And he said, when we do so, however, we will encounter discomfort. The discomfort of a cultural misfit, of a resident immigrant. So when I speak of the kingdom of God and kingdom of man, I'm speaking of loyalty and I'm speaking of comfort. Where do you feel most at home? Or when you look at the scriptures, which one strikes you as more radical or more alien to how you live, to how you think? Which culture do you embody more? So, with that in mind, point one. The kingdom of man is decadent. Now, decadence, decadence is the papering over of decay or decline with superficiality and excess. We see this in chapters 1 and 2. Persia had a couple of very powerful, really great kings, as history records. They built massive armies. They conquered the Babylonian Empire. They amassed wealth. And they even, if you pay attention to history, lived relatively humanely in terms of things like slavery. However, these kings have come and they have gone. And now King Headache is in charge. And when you encounter Esther chapter 1, you read of a massive party. Esther 1, one or, uh, 3 through 4 says, In the third year of the reign of Ashuerus, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Medea, the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed them the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days. 180 days. And splendid by the way it was. One historian writing about this records how rich was Xerxes. Well, a few years after this party, a few years later, when the Greek war ended in the failure for Persia, the Persians retreated, the Greeks overtook their encampment. The historian Herodotus records... That the Greeks found gold and silver couches left behind. They went camping with gold and silver couches. This isn't describing what's in the palace. This is what they took when they went out to war. As well, we can look at Esther 7 or Esther 1, 7 through 8. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to edict. There was no compulsion, for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. So golden couches, golden cups, and seemingly endless flow of wine. But what does it matter? All of this that we see in the first chapter of the book of Esther is about decadence. Because all of it is in service of one thing, to take our eyes off of the rot at the heart of the kingdom. It is about distraction to move our gaze elsewhere so that we do not notice what is taking place. What is below the surface? What is actually below the surface? Well, if you read the book of Esther, you'll notice that some of the most important characters in the book of Esther are eunuchs. These are men who have been castrated that they might serve in the palace of the king without any concern that there would be a liaison, air quotes, with the queen. In, in essence, the king took some of his most royal people, some of his most loyal people, and he ended their line. He killed their family lineage that they might serve him. Similarly, one of the major plot points of the book is a beauty contest in which the king had taken for himself the most beautiful women throughout the kingdom. In effect, the future brides of his population. He's removing eligible marrying women from the population. Now, there's an argument to be made that entering the king's harem could be good for a woman back in the day. I mean, there was poverty, there was want, there was... Uh, violence on a regular basis. And so entering the king's harem, being protected, being provided for, 
might have had significant benefits, but even looking at things that way, you would see the rot at the center of the kingdom. You would see that no one in the kingdom save the king and those in his palace was secure, not only in their position, but in their actual lives. All of this was to pay, all of this was what the decadence papered over. But actually, I think the strongest point of decadence takes place in Esther 3.15. After the prime minister, Haman, has decided that he wants to kill an entire population of people within the kingdom, he sends out a decree, and in Esther 3.15, it records this. The couriers went out hurriedly with the order from the king. The decree was issued in Susa, the citadel, and the king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. They have decided to kill a large number of people. And they have decided that they are going to paper over that death within themselves with copious amounts of drink. This is one of the ideas that leads us actually to our second point, that the kingdom of man is foolish. It papers over death and decay and decline with excess and superficialities, and it does so because at the heart of the kingdom of man is an utter lack of wisdom. There might be much striving for knowledge, much striving for understanding our world, but there is a lack of godly wisdom. In fact, we see this best in the king Ahasuerus, who has two points of tension in the story, and they are both his fault. This decree that I talked about him issuing in Esther chapter 3, he runs into a problem later on in the book of Esther. You see, in the Persian law, if a king issued a decree, it was irrevocable. It couldn't be taken back. And so the decree in Esther chapter 3 becomes an issue later on when Esther, the king's queen, has to approach him and ask him if there's some way around it. Some way that he might take back his word. And after thinking about it, after wrestling through it, the only thing he can come up with is letting the Jewish people who were to be killed kill their enemies a couple months before they were supposed to be killed, before the decree went into effect. You see, the foolishness of the kingdom of man is always to sacrifice one person for somebody else. You just trade off who you are disadvantaging, who you are objectifying. That is how the kingdom of man always functions. But this isn't the first time such a thing has happened, actually. In Esther chapter 1, we read, If it pleases the king, let a royal order go out from him. Let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that they may not be repealed. Notice that. They may not be repealed. That Vashti, who had just refused to come to the queen, is never again to enter to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. Seems to make total sense in the wisdom of the kingdom of man. She has wronged me. She can never come into my presence again until the wine has been metabolized and the temperature has cooled a bit. And then at the beginning of the very next chapter, we read in Esther 2.1. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti. And what she had done, and what had been decreed against her. The emphasis here is on the king's sorrow. He thinks back to his beautiful former bride, who, as Jim had said in previous weeks, was divorced, deposed, and banished from the kingdom. And he realizes he cannot recall her. His word is not revocable. And so again, the foolishness of the kingdom of man is displayed when you act rashly, when you act on the basis of merely your own wisdom, you make poor decisions. Interestingly enough, there's good historical evidence that all of the advisors that were present when the king banished Vashti, uh, he then killed and had a new set of advisors come in, and they're the ones who went, hey, how about you throw a beauty contest where we see all the beautiful women come to you? And that idea pleases the heart of the king but only after he has recognized the foolishness of his previous set of advisors and subjected them to their own deaths. And one of the reasons why I think this is applicable not just to Ahasuerus is this isn't the first time this has happened. The Bible records in the book of Daniel 
that one of Ahasuerus's ancestors, Darius, had been tricked into decreeing against people praying to anybody other than him for the period of time of 30 days. And so in the book of Daniel, we read in Daniel 6, 12 through 15, he's decreed against, only, you can only pray to the king for the next 30 days. He has an advisor, Daniel, who is a faithful Jew. He prays to Yahweh. And so the advisors, jealous of Daniel, come to the king they come near to him in verse 12. And they said to the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into a den of lions? And the king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and the Pers uh, Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes petitions three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed, and he set his mind to deliver Daniel, and he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, No, O king, that is the law of the Medes and the Persians, that no injunction or ordinance of the king established can be changed. Darius here is willing to lose one of his most trusted advisors, all in the service of making sure everybody else views his word as divine decree, supreme writ, when truly it is supreme foolishness. And so too, Ahasuerus is willing to, rather than admit fault and recall an order, willing to banish one queen and then allow an edict to stand that would allow for the legal assassination of his queen and her people. This is absolute foolishness. But it's allowed to stand because foolishness is always located in the pride of man which keeps us from humble repentance. And this actually leads us to our third point about the kingdom of man. It is insecure. Let me just make an observation that you, if you are familiar with the story of Esther, are probably aware of implicitly, but I want to draw it out explicitly. And that is this. The king throws a lavish party to show off the splendor of his empire, the splendor of his greatness, which is the crown jewel of which is literally the crown jewel on his queen's head, he banishes her. And I want you to read what happens next because I think that this is borderline slapstick comedy. Esther 1, verses 17 and 18. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all the women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt. Oh no. Since they will say, King Ashuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Medea, who have heard the queen's behavior, will say the same to all the king's officials. And there will be contempt and wrath and plenty. Verse 20. So when the decree, uh, so when the decree made by the king was proclaimed throughout all the kingdom, for it was vast, all the women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. And he sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, to every people in its own language, that every man may be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. Here is the thing that is implicit that I want to make explicit, especially to husbands in the room. If you need a governmental edict to prove that you are the head of your household, you are not the head of your household. What happens here is Queen Vashti refuses to come and everybody immediately freaks out. There is no thought of, oh, well, my wife and I are going to have to talk about this. Rather, the implication and the feeling you get from the text is as if these guys, who are some of the most powerful people in the entire kingdom, are going to go home and be, hey, honey, did, did you see the news? The edict? Oh, yeah, no, I mean the king. <laughs> Headache, right? <laughs> I mean, but it's law now, so I guess you have to submit to me. This is painful. 
It never crosses their mind that they should address this by themselves, but they need a royal edict to make sure their place in their home is secure. Insecurity is about uncertainty or anxiety concerning oneself. It's a lack of confidence. They have unlimited power in the realm. They are about to send a military to war young and old men of mighty strength in order to battle against the Greeks. They are drinking from goblets of gold, sitting on couches of gold, and yet they are fearful of their wives and their positions. Now, to a certain extent, my assumption is, as I have gone through those three points, that the kingdom of man is decadent, it is foolish, and it is Un, or not unwise, insecure. My guess is each one of you can think of and draw to mind things that have happened, probably relatively recently, maybe in the state of Arizona, maybe in our country, maybe in the world, where you can think of specific things and go, yes, here's an example of the decadence of our world. Here's an example of the foolishness of our world. Or here's an example of the insecurity of our world. In fact, maybe you can all think of one thing that captures all of those things together. Happy birthing person's day, by the way. I meant to say that earlier. But here's the thing. If we just wag our finger at culture, we won't actually hear what these things mean for us. You see, because as easy as it is for me to run through a list of 10s, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s of things that I see across our culture, across our world, whether from the state of Arizona or where I previously hailed from, the state of California or from our country or from various global events, as easy it is for me to run through things like that, it is actually equally easy for me to look at churches and different Christian ministries and different evangelical leaders and find the exact same amount of decadence foolishness and insecurity one of the most popular podcasts over the past six months was one that pointed at the massive institutional and leadership failures and abuses of a particular church which saw tens of thousands of downloads each week whose pastors sold hundreds of thousands of copies of their books it's not even difficult and here's the thing for us. When we think about the kingdom of man, it's not enough for us to wag our finger at culture whether we agree or not. And I will be the first to tell you about the decadence, foolishness, and insecurity I see. But this morning, we are gathered here as a church. We are gathered here as the people of God. And so I think the best way to take this message and what I see in the book of Esther is actually to contrast the kingdom of man with the kingdom of God and point out to each one of us that we are not merely to resist and reject the culture of the kingdom of man, but we are to embody the kingdom of God. We are to have a culture that reflects that we come from somewhere else. Theologian Jonathan Lehman said that churches are embassies from the future. We are representatives of a time and a place where Christ's rule is supreme and established and unquestioned, and we live in it gloriously. Now, we won't be perfect in this because we struggle with sin. We won't be perfect in this because the Holy Spirit has not seen fit to take our sin from us at the moment of conversion, but to move us inch by inch, degree by degree, towards Christ-likeness. But we must keep in mind that our job as a local church is not to reflect the, not just to resist the culture of our world, but to reflect the culture of the true kingdom. And so let me say these things. Though the kingdom of man is decadent, the kingdom of God is glorious. If you want just a fascinating spiritual exercise, read closely and carefully Esther chapter 1. And then flip to the end of your Bible and meditate upon Revelation 21. Here's what it says in Revelation 21, verses 1 through 8. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away. The sea was no more, and I saw a holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. 
And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And also he said, Write this down. These words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, all liars, their portion will be the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. In Revelation 21, at the end of all things, death has been conquered, and the tears caused by objectification of people, by the subjugation of people, by the violence of others, are all wiped away. There is no decadence in the kingdom of God, because there is no reality which needs to be papered over with excess and superficialities. There is no decadence in the kingdom of God because you do not need to sacrifice, objectify, or disadvantage anyone else in order that someone else may be lifted up. Do you know why? Because that person has already been made an object of God's wrath for our sins. Because that person was already sacrificed on a wooden cross for our sins. It was not, it was not done forcibly. But for the joy set before him, Christ walked the road of Golgotha to the cross, objectifying himself, sacrificing himself, laying down his own life, that the citizens of the kingdom of heaven might rise. There is no decadence, because when you scratch the golden streets of the glorious heavenly roads, you just find more gold. This is a grand reversal because the kingdom of man always wants you to look away from death. But the kingdom of God requires you to look straight at the most unjust death in all of human history in order to see the glory and grandeur of the kingdom right through that cross. The kingdom of man is foolish, but the kingdom of God is wise. Our kings, our leaders whether they come from the political right or the political left, often feel the need to cancel out one bad decree with another bad decree, to spin the nature of facts and events, to play language games with certain words. But the kingdom of God's wisdom goes back generations. Do you notice how it described the one seated on the throne? His words are trustworthy and true. How trustworthy and true? You know, the people who lead the kingdom of man do not know what tomorrow will bring. I want to show you what God knew, not just tomorrow, but decades and centuries would bring. I referred to the kings that preceded Ahasuerus earlier in this sermon. One of those kings was a man named Cyrus. Cyrus actually shows up a couple of times in the Bible, in the book of Daniel, in the book of Isaiah, in the book of Ezra. Here's what the book of Ezra, a book of history, records about Cyrus. Ezra 1, 1 through 3. In the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, the king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, Yahweh, the God of heaven, has given me all kingdoms of the earth and has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever of you, whoever among you, of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Notice in those, past, in those verses, 
Ezra references the prophet Jeremiah. This is actually a reference to Jeremiah 25 and 29, which you'll have to read at some other point because we don't have time this morning. But in Jeremiah 25 and 29, those two passages were written around 605 B.C. and 597 B.C. respectively. Now, for those of you like me who aren't good at math, I did it for you. One thing you have to remember, though, uh, pre-Christ, things count down to zero. After Christ, they count up, okay? So, if you have 5, or if you have 605 and 597 B.C., the events of Ezra take place in 539 B.C. In other words, Jeremiah, on the basis of receiving God's word, prophesied accurately events that would take place 60 years prior to them. 60 years prior to the Jews being released to go back, Jeremiah prophesied that King Cyrus would do something that no king in his right mind would do, which is let people go back to their land, rebuild their temple, worship their God, and rebuild all the military ramparts and walls that his people had overthrown earlier. Jeremiah, 60 years prior. But quite frankly, 60 years, not that big of a goalpost. So let's push it back a little bit. The first reference to Cyrus in the Bible is actually in the book of Isaiah. At the end of Isaiah chapter 44 and and at the beginning of chapter 45. Here's what Isaiah writes at the end of chapter 44. 44 verse 28. Who is Cyrus? He is my shepherd. He shall fulfill all my purposes. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. What Isaiah is writing about in that verse is actually fulfilled in Ezra chapter 1. Cyrus sends the people back by decree of the Lord, as we have just read, to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. So when did Isaiah write that? One of the most well-respected commentators and experts on the book of Isaiah writes this. Isaiah was called to prophetic ministry in the year King Uzziah died. Scholars compute that year to be 739 B.C. His ministry then extended for some 60 years through the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. According to tradition, Isaiah died a martyr's death at 680 B.C., early in the reign of the wicked king Manasseh. Legend has it that he was sawn asunder by this king. This means that Isaiah 44, if it was the last thing that Isaiah wrote, which it was not, would have been written in the year 680 B.C., 141 years prior to Cyrus's birth. Not Cyrus's edict, Cyrus's birth. Here's what, for context, here's what that is. That is like somebody predicting World War I from the writing of the Declaration of Independence. That is the span of time, 141 years. But actually, that wouldn't be all that bad because people always go to war with each other, so you could pretty much guess around the Declaration of Independence. You could be like, you know what? Somewhere around a century from now, a bunch of people are going to kill each other. And you'd be right. But it would be more like this. In future casting, not predicting the next president of the United States or even the president after that one, but it would be the same thing as predicting the president of the United States by name 35 presidential election cycles from now. Any of you want to take a shot at who's going to be president, uh, I don't know, four years from now? 35 election cycles. That is the wisdom of our God. It goes forward. It knows no bounds. Time does not affect it. Our God knows what is taking place, what has taken place, and what will take place to the point of being able to name people who have not been born yet and will not be born for over a century. The kingdom of God is glorious. The kingdom of God is wise. The kingdom of God is also sure. This is the point which I could spend the most time, but unfortunately, in order to totally unpack this, Uh, would literally take, I used to teach a class actually unpacking this one point, because how sure is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is as sure as an empty tomb and an occupied throne. You see, the kingdom of God, its security, its surety, is directly tied to the historical reliability that Jesus of Nazareth, historically and in a physical body, walked out of a grave three days after he was nailed to a cross. 
That is what the kingdom of God is based on. The foundation is whether or not Jesus literally, historically, bodily resurrected from the dead. And unfortunately, both the context of this time right now and the context of what my watch is telling me right now is that I do not have time to unpack the historical evidence for Jesus' resurrection. But I do want to tell you this. In context where I have taught that, and I've looked at mixed groups of non-believers and believers, and I've taught on the evidence for the historical resurrection in my belief, I'm always asked a particular question. And weirdly, it's associated with numbers, which aren't good for me. I'm not good with numbers. But people will ask me something around, uh, are you 100% certain, 90% certain, or just like 51% certain that Jesus rose from the dead? To be totally honest, I don't even know how you calculate that. So I always say about 87%. And then I follow it up by pointing out, but I'm actually only 30, uh, 83% probably that we aren't in the matrix or that this isn't some really vivid dream I've been experiencing as a coma from when I totaled my car when I was 16 years old. So that's only 83%. So then 87% is actually pretty good. But once you get past the jests, Here's what I tell people. There's four basic things you can do to test whether or not you should trust in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, or if you're doubting the resurrection, which you can help build your trust in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I usually number them this way. Second, you can read the Bible with special care for the books of Genesis, Psalms, Ecclesiastes, and the Gospel of Matthew. Third, read a biography, preferably of William Wilberforce, or Eric Liddell, or Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Fourth, look at the historical evidence for the resurrection, because what you will find is it is remarkably undisputed and very well historically attested. The reasons why this would strengthen your faith or cause you to doubt your doubts is pretty simple. In the book of Genesis, you will, you will encounter a coherent view of how the cosmos came into being. Not only that, most non-Christians believe that the book of Genesis teaches against trusting science, which you will not find in the book of Genesis. In the book of Psalms, what you will encounter is a robust emotional and cognitive life of somebody seeking to follow God in this world. And I guarantee, looking into that, you will find a real three-dimensional person in that text which tells you it can't be made up. These have to be the thoughts of somebody real because it's too earthy. It doesn't feel like fiction. In the book of Ecclesiastes, you'll encounter the truths of why people who seem so successful and so driven in our world feel so empty when they have all that supposedly they would have wanted. In the Gospel of Matthew, you will encounter the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, including the Sermon on the Mount, which is a spiritual and ethical starting point which has literally not been surpassed in 2,000 years. A carpenter in ancient Israel wrote an ethical code that we still cannot get around. We still cannot supersede. But you probably noticed that I left one out because there's a crucial first step to this experiment. And that is, you have to ask yourself, where your allegiance really lies. One of my favorite non-Christian authors is the late David Foster Wallace. If you want an absolutely fascinating listen, he gave a lecture, a commencement address, to Kenyon College titled This is Water. It's about 23 minutes long. I highly recommend you go listen to it. It's fascinating. The reason why it's fascinating is because Wallace yearned for the kingdom of God. He longed for it with a tenacity and a ferocity. And he said this in that lecture. Here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what we will worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC or Allah, be it Yahweh or the Wiccan Mother Godness or the Four Noble Truths or some inviolable set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. 
if you worship money and things, if they are where you tap the real meaning of your life, then you will never have enough. You will never feel you have enough. It is the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. When time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It has been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, epigrams, parables. The skeleton of every great story. The whole trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. I want to be sure that you hear why I do and do not like this quote. I do like it because it shows you exactly how close somebody who longs for the kingdom of God can get when they thoughtfully look for it. I don't like it because it also shows you how far away that person will still be without the grace of God. You see, Wallace's references to Yahweh and Jesus Christ being different people, his inclusion of the wicked mother goddess, whatever that is, the four noble truths, or the demonic Allah, all show us that though he was remarkably insightful, he failed to truly grasp it. He may have stood on the doorstep, but he couldn't find the doorknob. The most insightful thing that he said, though, that very last line, the whole trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. Isn't that what we struggle with as Christians? We want and long to live in the kingdom of God in service of Christ Jesus. And yet the noise and distraction of our present age often takes our eyes off of the kingdom of God and we begin to drift into allegiance to the kingdom of man. I've long thought that Satan does not need to destroy us in order to make us ineffective. He just needs to be good at distracting us. And ladies and gentlemen, he is quite good at that. A former colleague of mine has written this in a book on the kingdom of God. It is possible to have Christian beliefs and let yet live by another narrative. We can say we hold to Christian doctrines of the inspiration of scripture, of the deity of Christ, of the justification by faith. We can identify as a Christian and go to church on Sundays, yet in our day-to-day -day lives, we may still be living a secular narrative that is about building our own kingdoms. I believe many Christians today have been hijacked by a cultural narrative, or even worse, they have learned to baptize it with Christian lingo. In response, we need more than right beliefs with a bit of morality mixed in. We need a more compelling narrative. And that's exactly what Jesus gives us in the story of the kingdom of God. My friend Jeremy goes on to add later, the main temptation is not to reject God outright, but to embrace God as something secondary and to use God as an instrument for your own ends. And in his book, he actually gives us some diagnostic questions that I find helpful. If you want to know how your life, uh, if you want to know how your life answers that question, ask it this way instead. What do I get most excited about? How do I use my time? Where do I spend my money? Or think about it another way, what are you building your life around? What's at the core that shapes the whole? We have become far too comfortable in our present culture, in the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of man. I have been in and out of the book of Esther, which makes me a little bit uncomfortable. I'm much more of a fan of going verse 1 all the way through to the end. So let me anchor us back in the text. In Esther 4, verses 16 through, or 14 through 16, the edict of Haman, the, prince, uh, the prime minister, has gone out. Jews are in an uproar in the city of Susa because their lives have been threatened. And Mordecai, the uncle of Esther, comes to her and says this. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your ha father's house will perish. 
And who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai. Go and gather the Jews to be found in Susa. Hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days or nights. And I, my young women, will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king. Though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. In this moment, this point of the story, Mordecai tells Esther about the surety of the kingdom of God. Deliverance will come from somewhere else. He has no doubt that Yahweh will be true to his promises. The only question is whether Esther will participate. And Esther, weighing all that the kingdom of man has to offer a woman in her day, decides that it would be better to die as a citizen of the court of God's kingdom than to live as the queen of the kingdom of man. Would we make the same choice? Would we, given all that the kingdom of man has to offer, turn our back and walk toward the kingdom of God, on our lips the words, if I perish, I perish. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that in spite of the insecurity of our present day, not knowing what tomorrow will bring, in spite of the foolishness of the kingdoms of this world, be they here locally, be they here nationally, be they just here globally in terms of what we see, in spite of the decadence of our world, which so often trades the abuse of one for the abuse of another, so often trades the objectification of one for the objectification of another, Lord, we thank you that ultimately your kingdom is wise. That you know all and you have determined all that you would do to save. We know that your kingdom is glorious. That we, as one musician has said, will run one day down endless streets of gold. Because on our lips we will be shouting hallelujah Christ alone. And Lord, we thank you that we know that that is sure, that that is secure, because the tomb is empty and the throne is occupied. So Lord, would you fill our hearts with that message as we turn to worship our risen Lord and Savior. Amen. Thank you for listening to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We'd love to have you join us in person on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. You can find out more about us at journeyefc.org.